1: Woke up this morning, into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer,
0: who six months ago walked away.
1: When I arrive, he treats me like commodity. Give me a spec on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over twenty dollars, he tells
0: me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old don't know value.
1: Welcome everybody to the Valued Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value, how important it is, and how hard it is to read your customer's mind. Today, I have Richard Steinau, who is uh, a freshly minted, um, in a new role that is a a recycle of a role he's had for many, many decades. Uh, Richard, his role is to lead everything uh, at his new company. that everything that touches the client, uh, sales, marketing, branding, sponsorships, partnerships. um, And the company is Bellwether. Uh, Richard has been involved in events, which is Bellwether's business. Uh, He's been involved at the highest level. And when I talk about the highest level, I'm talking Tupac hologram at Coachella high level. Um, So Richard is really plugged into that industry uh, from the top and, and has a, has a really interesting perspective. Richard, I'm thrilled to have you here. Welcome.
0: I'm, if nothing else but the introduction takes place today, I'm thrilled to be here. That was beautiful thanks.
1: <laughs> so tell us what I miss. what are the you know what are the spaces beyond what I you know, that high level description Tell us more about what your day actually looks like.
0: So, look, I work in an industry with people who are adrenaline junkies. The the live events business is not something where it's all goes right. It's something where it's only a matter of time when something's going to go very wrong. Typically at live events, attendees don't see these things. But when you rely on technology and people, something goes wrong frequently. And so I've really had the opportunity to watch people plan and prepare themselves for success but also always having that ability to adapt in a moment. And as we've all seen over the last two years, adaptation has become critical. So it's been very interesting to watch the industry go through it, watch I had the opportunity to work with probably most of the Fortune 100 brands over to different events, their agencies, and different individuals. And each of them takes a different approach. Each of them has a different set of metrics and priorities. So while it is one industry, it is a great variation of needs and wants, which makes it a lot of fun.
1: Um, that sounds, you know, that's, that sounds like my world and and what I like to write about and work with is, um, the, the old movie city slickers and, and, uh, the, the old cowboy says, you've got to find your one thing. And it's a different one thing for everybody. Right. And, um, your challenge as somebody who's servicing that industry is that it, it isn't just your one thing. You, your business is finding every client's one thing.
0: It is one of the greatest challenges, right? Because at the end of the day, what we spend a lot of time with the clients on is not what they want, but why they want it. They may have seen some other event that had some element that they they think is really appealing. And so they come to you and say, hey, I need this square. This square has got to be part of the event. And then the right thing to do is to go, okay, great. Why? And what is it you see in that square? And what's the value of it versus just marching forward? Because in the end, really in our business, there, there are two things that are absolutely critical number one is message. What are you trying to convey and accomplish? And number two, brand. What is the brand? What does it stand for? And how do we represent it effectively? And so everything we do really communicates that brand image. And so sometimes a square is not the right solution, even though it looks great on someone else, it may not look great on you.
1: Yeah. I have a friend who says that best practices are stupid because best practices are somebody else's strategy. Um. that's uh, Those are words to live by, just to remember that it, it, it doesn't always look good on you. It yeah. may be a fantastic gown on somebody else, but it may not be flattering for your figure or for your brand image. So tell us a little bit about how that events industry has changed and what some of the, the pivots that you've, you've watched and, and tried to facilitate.
0: So in March of 20, uh, we saw the first inklings of cancellations and challenges and issues. And I think it collectively as an industry, we thought, well, we've seen challenges before. We saw SARS, we saw other things. Um, and so we'll, we'll, three, four weeks, maybe a month or two, you know, we'll get through this. And it continued to expand and extend. So initially some things were canceled, others were postponed, but as this thing dragged on and it re- we realized we were entering a very different universe, probably summer of 20, as an industry, we flipped to, oh, this virtual has to happen. And there were Zoom and, and other solutions. And within about four months, we went from maybe four or five viable online solutions platforms, as they call themselves, to over 100 of them. And each of them touting some new capability or experience or opportunity. And some of them were great in one area and just horrific in another. But they were all trying to be all things to all people. And so it became a time of huge confusion and total chaos in terms of this event would be with this platform, this event with that platform. This platform would work well in a live environment. This platform had to have pre-taped content. And so as you dealt with a client and they picked a platform and then all of a sudden it really limited you, we found ourselves not being in control but having to really adapt aggressively to here's all we can do in this environment with this client with this particular event. And then as we move forward, the industry really struggled to try and produce an event that was engaging, right? Like we can do all kinds of things. There are how many of these podcasts and webcasts and all these things. How do we make it enticing? And so towards the end of 20, we went away from quality um, being something that we, we hoped to get back to, and it became absolutely a hallmark. We had to make sure that, that quality was something that people saw. So we and others, we as Bellwether, address that issue by creating some solutions where we got in the center of it and we took the content that was coming through and made it more of a broadcast quality and we cut it differently so instead of just being a stream that was very simplistic and you sat there in front of it for 45 minutes and studies are proving that again and people will stay with these for 12 to 16 minutes maximum unless there's some sort of element to it that's more of a broadcast feel all of a sudden we started bringing broadcast quality experiences we created backgrounds we created cuts and angles, we, we took different cameras. There's different things that could be done and all of a sudden it became more engaging and we adapted to that as an environment. The problem was as an industry, again, as I started this, we're adrenaline junkies. We love to be on site, dealing with things, working with things, building it, moving it, fixing it. And in the virtual way, you don't have that same emotion. You don't have that same feeling. And so this industry has really struggled. Morale has dropped dramatically. About 20% of the industry has left at all levels. Because what they used to love, we don't really do anymore, and maybe we might be getting back to probably Q2 this year more fully. There's been a slow recovery, but even right now, we we just with Omicron, we just saw a big slate of postponements and cancellations. People want to be sensitive. People want to be careful. So hopefully, April May, we'll see some things coming back. But over the last two years, these people have suffered through a lot.
1: Yeah. I was just thinking you just had, when when we're recording, this is uh, towards the end of January and you're like a week and a half out of one of the biggest trade shows in your industry, uh, SEMA in Las Vegas. And I I know another friend who actually caught uh, COVID at (laughs) SEMA. And so what an underscore to have people just desperately wanting to get back into their world and being slapped down with, you're not, you know, the world is not ready to have you there yet. Um, Very true. Um, so I, as you were talking, do you have any hints for for people about what makes for a great virtual experience? You were talking about broadcast quality, uh, lots of different uh, camera shots um, and it, it has to be, super quality in order to engage people past the 12, that six, 12 to 16 minute. Any other thoughts uh, for events of any kind that people can uh, take to heart?
0: Yeah, I'll offer a couple of things. And I think there's several schools of thought. So I'll give you the one man's opinion, right? Um, at one point you mentioned Tupac at Coachella, right? The hologram came out in 2012. I was working with a company called AV Concepts at the time. They did that work and did a phenomenal job and working with some other folks. And the day after uh, the Tupac hologram or Coachella word got out, people found out it was us. I was in charge of sales and marketing there and our phone wouldn't stop ringing. And it was all of the agencies of the top 50, Fortune 50 brands that all wanted their CEOs to be holograms tomorrow. And it was this real struggle to sit with them and talk to them about how the technology worked and why did they want to do this? It was hip, it was cool, and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, did it really apply to what they were trying to do? And I find the same thing is true today. If you start with a technology as a solution, you all of a sudden cripple yourself. What is the most important thing you can do for a virtual event? Number one, you have to think of the attendees in a different way. The attention span and the distraction uh, matrix is so much higher than, than it ever has been for a live event. Yes, you can sit at a live event and look at your phone, absolutely, but you're not looking at seven different windows, talking to the dog who's at your door, trying to take care of something that's happening. It's such a different environment that we've got to keep the the presentations shorter. You've got to think through the content. There have to be sound bites along the way that make it after seven minutes, there needs to be new information shared so that I want to stay with this, right? So there's constantly new information that's coming up. It needs to be engaging. It used to be on a stage that you wanted the CEO to stand and deliver. I would say in the 90s to early 2000s, it was that prominent, the execs got on stage and they just talked to the masses. No more. That doesn't really work. And even worse than that is sitting and delivering, meaning that some executive is sitting here droning on about something that they want to pitch or talk about. But what value is it? What, is it, what does it really do? And the most important thing a virtual event can do is start a conversation. Your content should be all about how do I give enough information to get those who are watching to start interacting and engaging and trying to move forward and take action on what they hear versus just pontificating and sharing our wisdom to the world. But there's really nothing to talk about or nothing that that makes me take action. I think those are some of the simple things. Broadcast quality is very important. Don't pick your platform right out of the gate. Figure out what you're trying to accomplish and then figure out which platforms do that best. We've seen a lot of work now of creating subgroups within broadcasts, so even a thousand person virtual broadcast. All of a sudden now I can create rooms where individuals that are similar can get together and watch that broadcast, kind of like a Netflix viewing party, but they're doing it professionally. And now they're not listening to a chat with a thousand people that can be overwhelming. They're in a room with people like them, similar interests. Their chats are more meaningful and more likely their networking and connections will be more meaningful.
1: Wow, that's very cool. I'm working on a project where I'm, I'm already thinking about how I can make that happen in my uh, mediocrities project. Uh, maybe, maybe, we, maybe we need to talk a little bit more afterwards. Um, so, uh, how, how has Bellwether uh, fared through COVID? Uh, any new lines of business? Did you, I mean, certainly you had to learn a lot of virtual technologies and virtual platforms. Yep. Anything else?
0: I think uh, like a lot of industries or a lot of our companies in the industry. So we're an agency, meaning that we help the brands figure out a way to best present themselves, um, whether that's content, messaging, the layout, the production flow, all those things, right? Anything that goes into a virtual live event. And so that business really fell off with cancellations. And then those that came back as virtual events, typically if they were going to spend $2 million on a live event, they might want to spend $200,000 or $100,000 on a virtual event. So your average uh, revenue went down, your margins were impacted and that's across the industry. It's just something we all dealt with. And so we quickly had to figure out how to be really effective at delivering these things and create not a rinse and repeat, but really a set of production processes that helped the clients and educated them and got them ready and made this a very efficient process for everyone. And so for us, what has happened through the process is our relationships have grown. Our clients have seen us adapt and help them to be successful in an environment where others have struggled. So it's brought us more recognition. It's brought us uh, tighter client relationships. We've had several clients who have moved during the pandemic, which is very common in our industry right now. You would see 10 or 15% turnover prior to the pandemic. Right now we're seeing about 50 to 60%. People are moving consistently and some people have moved twice during the pandemic, maybe more. And so as our clients are moving or, or changing in their roles, they're taking us with them. So As we come out of the pandemic, I think in 2019 versus 2022, we'll be at about 75% of the 2019 revenue in in this year. Uh, And then we expect to exceed 2019 next year, just as events come back and things happen. And it really comes down to clients that are super happy and we've retained all of our people. We we just made sure during the pandemic, even when we, we didn't have an income, that we took care of the people. And I think I can't over recognize Bellflower, Bellweather, Bell and so many others who have done a phenomenal job of really taking care of people during a tough time. That will pay off for them, for us, over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, that's a great testament to flexibility. Uh, you and I, in preparation for this, we talked about a, uh, an article I was writing about the, the mediocrity of the statement, stay in your lane. Um, yep. we told people stay in your lane, just do your job. I'll figure out if your job has to change. And, um, man, that the, the world showed us how inappropriate that, that kind of thinking is. Um, you've got to change from the outside in from the bottom up, not, uh, have some, uh, brilliant leader tell the organization what step change to, to implement. Right. Um, Tell me about how, I mean, you, you started telling us when uh, the, the phones were ringing off the phone after the Coachella event, um, how lead, how customer focus and, and focusing on your customer and your customer's outcome, your client's outcome, uh, leads to better outcomes for that client. Do you have any stories about uh, turning down work that wasn't right or helping adjust the, the scope of the project or where they're headed?
0: Yeah, I think um, I'll start it generically and then we'll talk more specifically. So one of the best things that we can do in our industry is that our clients typically are understaffed. And especially now, one of the things the pandemic has done is where we used to get three to six months to plan an event. Now we get three to six weeks. And as we come out of the pandemic, because we've worked under those schedules, those are becoming more the norm. And it's pretty darn hard to do really good work in such a compressed time frame, especially if you're dealing with 20,000 person user conference and all the gyrations that go into that. And so what we've found, especially uh, after the pandemic, but even prior, we have really made sure that we understand not just what the client wants, why they want it, what the driving factors are and who the stakeholders are involved and engaged because it is not our job to respond to the requests it is our job to intuit what the request will be and be very engaged with our clients so that we're offering solutions before they know there's an issue or that when they come to us with something that we quickly have answers because we've thought it through. So I think the most important thing that we've seen is that we sit down with our clients in the beginning. So we were asked to participate in an RFP process. And that's for us about 20% of the business. It's probably 50 to 60% of the business across the industry. We, We don't really choose to do a lot of those. More often than not, they're in a structure or they're built in a way that really doesn't allow any sort of connection. So in this particular RFP that was offered to us, we looked at the schedule and said, can we just have an exploratory meeting to really understand what's going on? Because the RFP gives us the basic information of what is needed, but we don't know why. And the response was, no, we we don't want to take that time. So we said no to that particular RFP. Then we had another client come to us in a process, they just needed information. And so we sat down with them and said, okay, what exactly are you trying to accomplish? And they really, they were new to the role, new to the company, never had an event before, and they clearly didn't have all their factors lined up. And so instead of just moving forward with a lack of information and trying to take some guesses, we stepped back and said, look, can we spend a little time helping you shape this out a little bit more, not related to what we do, but you've got a bigger, more than just production and, and content and those sort of pieces. You've got an entire event to figure out. Let's, let's talk about what you can do about catering. Let's talk about what venue you're going to select and why you're going to select them and why that makes a difference for a lot of different things you're trying to do. And held the client's hand through the process. You've got to imagine, right, after going through that together, there's a lot of connection. There's a great relationship there. And most importantly, there's the trust. That's all we want really to have with our clients is trust. Because if we can trust them and they can trust us, we can have open, candid conversations. Mostly positive, but sometimes hard. Yeah, And that really helps us get through obstacles.
1: You know, what a great illustration, those two uh, bookend examples. Uh, I had seen some research and I've, I've done a bunch of articles recently about two different kinds of customer. And the fact that those two different kinds of customer actually drive a different go-to-market strategy. The one kind of customer has bought your commodity, your stuff, your product, yes. repeatedly knows exactly what they want. They don't need, they know what they want. Uh, so they might issue an RFP that they're actually so experienced at buying that, that that RFP is pretty well-founded and, and they actually have a good decision, have made good decisions around that RFP. Uh, you may or may not know why, but they they know it well enough so that it's not worth their time. Um, we'll get to the we'll get to that middle case in the in the in a second. But the second one, the second kind of customer is a customer where it's new to me, new to my company, risky to me, or risky to my company, or very complex. Some combination of those things means that they want a they want a consultant to help them. And if you go to market. With just cold callers and appointment setters or RFP responders, you're not giving that customer what they want. They still want an expert. It's just not going to be you anymore because you you went to them with a you know a script reading cold caller. And so your go-to-market and the way you train your salespeople and the business acumen you give your salespeople really should follow. Which kind of customer? Now, you happen to have both kinds of customers. What do you do? Um, and you like you like consulting with that second kind of customer.
0: Absolutely.
1: And it sounds like when you get an RFP, you are at least willing to take some of them saying, are you sure you want this RFP? Do you really understand? Uh, because there's the third kind of customer who thinks they know it all, but doesn't right? And they, yep. they actually need a consultant worse uh, in some ways. Uh, they just don't know they need it. And so you have to take some responsibility dictates. You have to at least try to um, talk them off the ledge or make sure that they really understand their needs as well as they think they do.
0: I think one of the things that I'm really proud of what we do is we really put up guardrails for our clients and even for the prospects as they are going through the process. So when we turned down the RFP, we sat down with the individuals and said, here, just so you know, not just we're not doing this, but here's what we think is missing. And that we, they, we think you can improve so that as you go forward without us, you can have this come out the way that you need it to come out. It's, if, you, if you thought enough of us to send us something, we at least owe back to give you some advice or at least our perspective. And we may not be right. And you may have your process and we don't want to disrespect it. But at the end of the day, if there's some improvements that can be made to help them get to their end goal. That's really what we're here to do, whether we're working with them or whether we're just casually invited to talk to them. It really falls into three buckets. If we've known the client and we have a sense of what their business is, and they put us in an RFP process. We're likely to participate as long as we don't. We had one coming the other day that we were pretty sure, 95% sure. They just really need to go through a three-year process to go out to bid, kick the tires and go back to the people that they love who've done a phenomenal job. and We wouldn't recommend a change from those folks at all. So we said, you know what, We just the time and energy to respond is just something that we, don't, we can't handle right now. We receive some that are blind. We don't know the client. So if they'll give us some time and let us talk and understand what their motivation is and why, then we're likely to participate in that process if we think there's a good cultural fit. But blind RFPs that really are just about getting budgets and, and details and those things, and it's all about the paper, that's, those aren't clients that we do well with. So why pursue it only to end up with a relationship we don't love? Yeah. Um...
1: So um, you've turned down work that wasn't right. And yep. that's, uh, that takes courage in a downturn when revenues are down, when customers are, are desperate. Um, tell us about how you've got executives on board with not chasing everything <laughs> that was moving.
0: So a little backstory, right? So I was actually looking, I was going to go start, join a software startup. $500 million in venture funding. We're going to grow the company to a billion dollars. I was going to lead global sales and marketing. And I reached out to Bellwether because I needed a reference. I needed someone to, to give them that as the final step in the process before I would get the job offer. And when I talked to Jeff, one of two owners of Bellwether, he asked, what are you doing? And I explained it to him. He'd been a client of mine for over 10 years, one of my favorites. And he's like, you should come work for us. And I'm like, what? Why would, why would I work for you? You don't have sales and marketing at Bellwether. And he laid out to me where they were at and where they were going, and one of those tenets of the plan is there will be only twenty million in revenue, max. That's all we're going to do. For some, that's a really small amount of revenue, and in my history, I've always managed companies hundred to three hundred million dollars. That's really small. But again, what's the why? I'm like, okay, so why twenty million? At twenty million, we can say small enough that we can all just work together. We don't have to put all these processes and procedures and all these things that actually become barriers to being able to really focus on the client. And in the end, we also don't wanna travel our people. In our business, it's not uncommon to travel 250 to 300 days a year, give up your family. Uh, the divorce rate is very high in our industry. So there's a lot of personal things that you give up to be a part of our industry. We won't do that to our people. We want them to have a quality of life, but we also want them to have a very successful career. So at 20 million, the company's very self-sustaining. We'll do just fine, thank you very much, as an organization. For the owners and for the employees people can actually have time at home and enjoy their families and be at events right and at the end of the day the owners want to make sure that this is an organization people love working for because that extends out to the clients so as a head of all things client-facing sales marketing business development branding all the rest my number one metric number one is employee morale if i sell it right to the right client And set this up in a way, our people will love what they do. Our clients will love the work we do. And that will be enough. We'll make it through. And so I didn't have to set the culture, convince the leaders. They convinced me that this was actually a better approach. So instead of retiring five years and and having millions of dollars in the bank from the software startup, but four years of my life gone where I miss my kids, instead, I get to go to a place I love every day where we have our number one criteria is how do we help people be happy? Whether they work for us or with us, we just want them to have happiness in their lives. Not easy to do.
1: You know, uh, Richard, I'm, I've talked to a couple of leaders. Uh, I've talked to Gary Rich, the CEO of WD-40, who believes exactly the same thing. Uh, I've talked to a, a couple other companies that CEOs' names are escaping me right now. Sorry uh, if, that I forgot your other names, everybody else. But um, We're turning into uh, a world where it is an employee's market, not an employer's market. Uh, Since you and I were born, birth rates have been falling and jobs have been growing. Do the math, right? COVID wasn't the reason for the great resignation. COVID was the tide going out a little faster than it had been going before. And it's not that people today don't want to work. It's that people don't want to work for a crappy company like yours or for a bad boss like you. And if you want to keep the best people you have to. You have. It's a. It's a strategic imperative to be a great company that puts morale um, at the beginning. So Richard Branson was has been quoted as saying the same thing: take care of your people, and everything else falls into place. Um, Agreed. High high praise. Uh, what control? What self control and discipline to realize that you're the constraint to being a great culture. Uh, is a revenue number that other people would frown at.
0: Yep. It, it seems almost, you know, as I thought about it and I thought about taking the opportunity, I'm like, will I be challenged? Will, will this be interesting? Will it be large enough? Will I be able to get my teeth into this, right? And it was all this mentality that somehow the size made all the difference. Um, I, I'm one of right now nine employees, we will grow to be 15 roughly uh, in 2022. And I sit on calls and I watch people who have very specific roles in the company and then something needs to get done. And guess what? They raise their hand and go, I got that. And I thought to myself as our creative director the other day, took a very menial task. That it was going to be seven hours. Creative directors in our industry don't do anything outside of their scope. They're incredibly smart people. They have a very defined role that they want to do and they're very good at it. Thank goodness they do what they do. But when you say to them, I need you to go do this Excel task for the next seven hours to help us to make sure the client gets what we promised, it just wouldn't happen in most companies. And so being a part of a group, and I read a Forbes article recently and said, stop calling your company a family because it isn't, it's a business and it doesn't operate like a family. I can tell you that this is a family-centered business. We are a family at Bellwether and it drives everything we do and it allows me actually to have more satisfaction each day in my work than I've ever had. So for that, I'm really grateful, but I didn't set the tone. I just was lucky enough to be adopted into it.
1: Yeah. Um, I reached out to you as my guest because you uh, posted something on LinkedIn that was about your first week. Uh, yeah. About, um, can you kind of either read that or, or summarize that? Because that really that really struck me, it really resonated with me that you are exploring a different way of doing business with a really different family?
0: Yeah. One of the things that for me was a little scary, right? Is is I went from again, nine employees. I think uh, I came from world stage, which at its height was roughly about 200 employees before that I came from a company that had about hundred and before that a company of uh, probably over 2000 that I was responsible for over 200 of them. And so I I looked at that whole dynamic. And so when I came here, I was really, I I loved everything I heard. It felt right. I interviewed every employee who's here and each one of them had a story of not only why they work here, but why they love working here. And so I made that change. But like anything, when you join a new company, like, okay, where are the bodies going to be buried? The closets will open, all those sort of things. And so the title of my post was never meet your heroes, right? These are guys I've loved and worked with for a really long time, but now I'm not their supplier. I'm their employee. How will this change? Um, I'll, I'll give you the most recent example, not in my post, but uh, I'm talking to one of the owners that I work with primarily on the sales side. and side, excited. We're going over the pipeline and things are happening and things that are here and things that are there. And I'm like, you yeah, know, I really hope and I want this. And he listens calmly for five minutes and very kindly. And then he goes, you need to relax. And I said, I'm sorry, you need to relax. We are in a great situation. We don't need a lot of things. We need a few things you're here because you know, the right people to bring to us. And at the end of the day, this isn't a 2022 situation. This is 2023. And we got all kinds of time. So I want you to sit back and really think about, of all the things you just talked about, which ones are really best for the client where we can help them? Not where can we go get more, but where can we get the right stuff for them that we can be heroes in that organization? And that just continues to be something that fascinates me. I'm still adjusting to it because it's such a value-centered decision and not revenue generation, and metrics, and pipeline. And so it's a different world, and I'm still adjusting. I love it, and my wife actually said to me uh, earlier this week, wow, you really seem happy, I mean, genuinely happy. And I, I didn't see the change, but others are. And so that, that's an example of why a great culture can really lead to great morale.
1: That's fantastic, uh, and what a great anecdote to end on. Richard, thank you. How can people get a hold of you and Bellwether if they, if they want to learn more?
0: Yeah, so Bellwether, the website is bellwethershow.com. And then my email, I'd love to hear from anyone that I can help or wants to keep counting the narrative going. Um, That would be R Steinau, R S T E I N A U, at bellwethershow, B E L L W E T H E R S H O W.com.
1: Great. Richard, thanks a lot for for joining us. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Great conversation. Uh, Really thrilled by this. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that sales, marketing, and business is a lot more like brain surgery than you probably thought. Thanks, and have a high-value day. Bye-bye. Well, it ain't easy, because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value, blue.